Morning, brother. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, bro. It's 2021. It is 2021. How did you spend your New Year's Eve? I was with family and then we actually went to a socially distanced crossover service, which was peculiar. It's something which I do <laughs> every single year, that crossover service meaning like church. Yeah. Um, but I've seen how understandably during these times, there's a great apprehension as to whether you should be gathering with anyone, including mm. family. Um, and there are very few people there, which is a good thing in terms of not, not spreading the new virus but strange in that the world is changing rapidly and i'm constantly being reminded about it visibly but apart from that it was, that was good um something i like to do just to keep myself grounded um we've had a lot of people ask questions around uh, mental state and and purpose and i find that a great deal of my purpose comes from knowing that i'm not alone and a lot of it's not my problem. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. How about you? Yeah, I mean, this has uh, been a really interesting one for me because this is the first uh, New Year's in almost a decade, I would say, that I didn't attend some form of crossover service. Um, I, I was at home. It was me, my wife, and YouTube. Uh, yeah. And, you know, what I did do is I put pen to paper, uh, spent some time looking at 2020 and writing down what I was grateful for and then also shaping up my plan for 2021. Uh, it was yeah, a really important step that me and my wife did together. You know, We looked at what we were going to do for 2021, how we attacked it. We prayed in, into the new, new year and we just started to... I guess reflect on what what kind of year we've had and it's been one where a lot of people have had difficulties a lot of people have had you know challenges that they've had to face for us you know, there's a lot that we can be grateful for which is weird to say because you know they're, you know People have died, people have been incredibly sick, people have lost their jobs, people have lost their homes, unfortunately. For us, you know, I appreciate that, I accept that, but I can also say that this has been a year of you know, a lot of uh, successes for me. So yeah, bittersweet in a sense, but also really good to reflect on the year and, and look forward to the new year. Very wise. Um, it's, it's something I'd recommend to everyone, not just the the goal setting and the forecasting for the year ahead, but the perspective of finding gratitude in every season. Um, the reality is there will always be challenges, there will always be storms, there will always be ups and downs. But the only thing we can control, cliche as it must sound, is how we respond to it and whether we can be grateful for something within our lives. There is always something to be grateful for. And unfortunately, and I say unfortunately, it has been through a lot of the tragedies I've heard personally during this period, which has pushed me even further to be grateful. Um, and I know that it might sound a bit rich to, for me to even suggest to those people that find something to be grateful for because I'm not in their situation and I'm not feeling their pain. But I, I do deep down know that that is the only way out, just, just finding something 
that you can still see beauty in. Yeah, and it puts you in the right mindset for the next year. I think one thing which is common amongst all living people is the need for progress yeah. and the need to move forward. And I think it becomes infinitely more difficult for us to think about progress and for us to think about moving forward if we don't have anything to be grateful for or thankful for. Because then the question becomes, what's the point? And that's where nihilism sets in, et cetera, et cetera. So I completely agree that finding gratitude and approaching life from a position of gratitude, even in periods as, as difficult as this, is so crucial to your success, but also to your mental health. So yeah, it, 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 it's something which is going to be a test. And times like this will really test your metal, who you are and, and, mm -hmm. and the way that you perceive the world. You know, in terms of tests, test, very quick segue, something I learned recently in like the last week. There's a concept called desirable difficulty. And it's one of those concepts which I think we already knew it, mm. but we didn't know what it was called. And the way it's explained kind of conceptualizes it for people so that they truly understand it. It's this idea, there was um, a study done between MIT and Princeton students. Um, I think it was a CRT test, which are already known as being extremely difficult tests. And the MIT kids were just wiping the floor of the Princeton kids. They're just, just, just destroying them. And what they did in the second phase of the test was that they made the tests for the Princeton kids even more challenging, not in terms of the, what the questions were, but how the questions were presented. So suddenly the questions were presented in a gray color and italics and slightly differing font so that the kids being like young adults literally had to squint to see it. And what they found was that the moment they did that for the Princeton kids, those same tests, the Princeton kids outperformed the MIT kids. And it's this theory which is, has gone around for a long period of time, which some people have coined as desirable difficulty, which is strangely enough, if you make things harder, people perform better. Now, there are so many reasons why this might be true. On, on some occasions, some people are just coasting in the first place, they're not giving it their all. But there is mm. something that we are all, we all have like a reservoir that we can dip into, which pushes us further. We can all do more. And if you're able to almost uh, socially engineer desirable difficulty within your life, you will find greater performance. And I know that we, we've spoken about this previously, but I just never knew the phrase. And it's something which I, I'm still interested in digging into because as someone in education, I've seen it beforehand. I've used it beforehand with a kind of strange belief that this will work. Make it hard. I'll scaffold it for them. We'll get there. But not realizing that actually this is something scientifically proven to work within all of us. So... Um as as a sports fan and as a Liverpool fan in particular, this is um, something that resonates with me in particular. For me, this explains why Liverpool can beat Barcelona 4-0 and then lose to West Brom yeah. or draw with West Brom because you s set your, f your, your mindset 
your frame of mind around the challenge and you rise to the occasion. Yeah. If you are faced with something which you believe is mundane or basic, then that's the type of effort that you bring. And when it comes to sports psychologists, one of the biggest challenges that they have is making sure that a team's mindset is appropriate for the competition because we can't help it. We can't help but see a, a, a lesser challenge and reduce our drive around that challenge because Definitely. the accolade would be less as well. So to those listening and to myself, which desirable, desirable difficulties are we going to engineer for ourselves? If we haven't set ourselves stretching, challenging activities and goals, potentially we won't not only reach them, but feel a sense of fulfillment. That mm. growth in the process won't happen. It makes, it makes me also think about um, job interviews or days when you have a difficult presentation or a challenging presentation to deliver at work. And normally during the week, getting out of bed might be difficult. Mm. Getting your clothes on might be difficult. Maybe you don't put on that shirt that takes a, an extra 10 minutes of ironing. You don't put on a shirt and these cufflinks, etc. Um, you just you know drag yourself into work. But on a day where you've got that presentation, you fly out of bed. Or on a day when you have that yeah. interview, you're leaping out of bed. You're ready. The week leading up to it, you know, you've been doing the analysis, you've been doing your homework, and you feel prepared. The, the adrenaline's rushing, and you bring that effort into the, the challenge you're facing. Um, so how you harness that, I think, is a very interesting idea and i'm definitely going to delve into the concept of was it desirable difficulty desirable difficulty uh, mm. i think that is the secret just i think <laughs> reflecting back over the last three decades i think i'm a fairly average human being but i think one thing which i've done well in the last two decades is to push myself into the deep end mm. push yourself into the deep end people agreed um, so we, we talked about the idea of, kind of pushing yourself further and I, I think 2021 it being a new year is a great opportunity for, for people to really step out of their comfort zone and delve into a new space and around that we've started a series about starting a new initiative, starting a project. You've got that You've got some concept, an innovation in your mind and you want to see it turned into reality. And you know the only way that you can do that realistically is by forming a team and attacking that as a brigade. And in the last episode, we talked about some of the uh, intricacies of forming a team and, and how to effectively produce um, uh, a working team and what types of things to look out for. Today we want to talk about actually some of the first contacts, some of the first communication that you will have within the team, within the concept of this new innovation, this new idea, bringing that team together around uh, a new challenge that we all want to face. Before I want to do that, I want to address something that we didn't talk too much about last time, which is the idea of 
differences within a team, personality types and how those personality types should be diverse and what that diversity brings to the table. So I want to ask you, Afalabi, from your perspective, in the teams that you've worked in previously, what benefit did diversity in your team bring to actual delivery? At the time, it probably wasn't appreciated um, that the individuals were bringing value because of their different personality types. But upon reflection, it most definitely did add value. Um, some of you may have come across the likes of Myers-Briggs. Others may have come across the likes of Color Me Profiles, where you have the, the Bs, and some of the Bs, sorry, the Blues, the Reds, the Greens, the Yellows. And, and what this taught me is that you can't have 11 Cristiano Ronaldo's on a football field. Not everyone can be Jordan or even want to play that role. Someone has to be willing to sit back and think and question. Someone else has to be willing to sit back and think about the the common good, just the welfare of the team, just how people are doing whilst going through this process. Others have to think about how they're going to celebrate the win which hasn't even been achieved yet. And someone's got to be that brutal, uh, almost warlord, who is just pushing relentlessly, constantly, irrespective of how people might be feeling. And once you've got that accurate balance of all of them, then there's a, almost a symphony in execution. Because what I've learned is that if you... I, I've been both the, the red, the person who's pushing constantly, almost forgetting that I'm dealing with people, and also have been the blue where I'm thinking more than I'm actually acting. And if you lean to one of those four quadrants more than others, you might find that the rate to success is actually being held back or your rate to success is accelerating, but the people that you are meant to be taking there won't stick with you when you get there because Mm -hmm. it's for you and it's not for them. So it's, I I wish I could almost refer to a specific tangible initiative where I learned that this, this wasn't the way forward. It's, it's definitely come across in the last decade that, one, I need to appreciate different personality types. Two, I need to know what these personality types are like, and it might be worth actually going into some of those. Uh, quickly, I know from these tests that I'm a hybrid. I'm a, I'm a blue-red. So blues are people who like to do it right, and I think I lean more to the blue. I like to get things done right. The, the strength of that is that, well, there's a, a moral purpose, there's an integrity. The weakness is, well, you might not um, get off the blocks as quickly as you should. On the other half, I'm part red, and that's a do-it-now kind of person. Um, harking back to our episode on do-it-now, they're great. Um, they're your stereotypical uh, leaders. However, do-it-now people can often neglect the people that they're doing it with. And you've got your... Um, your greens and your yellows who are a lot more people focused, a lot more life experience focused. In the past, leaning to one of those sides has meant that I've not executed as well as I could do. And it's only now with the knowledge that actually there are people with different personality types that I'm able to see, okay, this person will value this and thus they need to be spoken to in this way and they need to be informed about what they value. So who should you be speaking to about the victory party 
up during the battle because that's what mm. will actually keep them going. Who do you need to speak to about the moral purpose of why you're doing this? Because that's what, they'll, that's what will keep that person going through. Who do you need to just let loose? <laughs> actually, um, a prime example, I remember three years ago, um, when I, four years ago, when I joined a, a specific establishment, um, I had a, a team which I was building. And after those four years, I was a longest serving member. So I'd actually completely changed every member in the team. And I remember giving them names, nicknames. So whenever I gave them Christmas cards, I, I'd write personalized notes. And I had a lieutenant, I had an advisor, I had a, a protege, I had a squire. Now this seems very corny, but it brought so much credit um, for me in them because these notes were personalized. And I continued the extended metaphor um, within those 200 words that I wrote for that person, just sharing who that person is for me, what they've done for me so far and why I need them in the future. So my lieutenant was someone who, she was a red. She was someone who actually annoyed other people <laughs> because she was loud mouth, off the cuff, said it as it is, a hit, um, shot from the hip. But she was great in that we were in the trenches and I needed someone who could help me drive. And as long as I had those one-to-one -one performance management meetings with her and kept her in line with the vision, I could let her loose, knowing that, yes, there might be instances where she like almost like a, a bowling ball hits the sides a few times but she's gonna strike mm. i had my advisor um a lot more meek um a lot more akin to me in terms of the way she did things she wasn't the most confident in her own ability but she was talented um she was a thinker she didn't necessarily feel as if she deserved the position that she was in but i knew that she was good and um, ironically i wouldn't say ironically the lieutenant and the advisor were both in the same position, but the advisor is the one who's now taken my role after I've left. And I'm not actually surprised by that now because she was so much of a thinker. She worked harder. And I think the lieutenant potentially focused more on her flair, charisma, and not actual ability she didn't she didn't work on her blueprint enough to achieve mm. there was a protege going through quickly who was a young up-and-coming who needed a great deal of work but needed encouragement and i kept on reminding her of what she did well and um, there was a great deal that she still needed to learn but there was a basis there if she was willing to learn four years on the feedback is still the same You're still the protege if you continue to learn you could be really good if you continue to learn and then there's a squire squires um middle english middle middle england were trainee knights now this was someone who lacked a great deal of confidence he wanted to leave the profession on numerous occasions and i kept him in and i said listen there's something in you let's be frank you don't have all the pieces you're not like the protege you're in the same position as them but you don't have the grounding and you haven't had the training i will help you and just using those identity profiles masked behind the color me Myers-Briggs profiles helped me to remind them of who they were, but also put them together and get them to see who they were. Because they shared these nicknames with one another they sh and they found it funny. And they, in a strange way, looked forward to these cards. But upon reflection, it's what taught me that you need difference. 
And the key is how you manage that difference and who you get to do what within specific activities. Um, I think the reason why that is such a powerful example and it's a perfect um, demonstration of different personality types. The reason why it's such a powerful example is because these are what we refer to as archetypes. Um, and when we look at archetypes, we know almost instinctively what they represent. Like if you think, if you close your eyes and think about a lieutenant, you have an image of that person. When you think of a protege, you know what they look like. And therefore you're almost creating a shorthand for the, the, the team's dynamic. You know what the lieutenant will bring to the table versus the advisor. It's very interesting that a lot of your um, archetypes kind of link back to almost a Game of Thrones <laughs> style. <laughs> we were fans. Um, uh, Game of Thrones style um, approach. But I think it's something that people can connect with. Um, and what it also does is it masks the inadequacy. And what I mean there is that all of the examples, all of the archetypes that you've you've highlighted, all have predominantly positive characteristics. Yes, they have their weaknesses, but I'm sure it was not um, by accident that you picked nicknames with yeah. a positive takeaway, a positive um, uh, overall demeanor. And what that does is it it does set in a sense of ownership i'm happy to be the lieutenant even if i am brash and maybe a bit short-sighted but i am the right-hand woman um i'm happy to be the advisor because even though i'm not the person on the front line i'm the one that the leader listens to so there are definitely some some valuable um uh, some valuable characteristics that people would want to hold on to that um and the the aim here is to create an environment where people can mesh and work together. Yes. Um, what, what you don't want is a situation where a squire is trying to be the lieutenant or a situation where the advisor is trying to be the protege. Um, but the, the, the challenge that you also want to avoid, and you've touched upon this yourself, is being pigeonholed. Because when it comes to a development discussion, what you what you want is an all-rounder. But you want an all-rounder who can fill in certain gaps. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned the fact that you are a hybrid blue-red. And there are going to be times where you need to be red. And there are going to be times where you need to be blue. Um, within my teams, I never accept the idea that somebody is just one thing. For me, it's the exact same as when people tell me that they don't do maths. Oh, I can't do math. Yes, you can. You choose not to. Yes. And the reason why is because when it comes to leadership, it's not effective to just rest on one area um, of competence. Being a blue is fantastic. And I have blue tendencies, um, but it has its limitations. Um, being a red is great, but it has its limitations. And when we're talking about high-performing individuals, the aim is so that people can draw on those different energies um, at, at any one time, but maybe having a set point. Um, if you're not sure what type of personality you have as, a, as an overarching or as a dominant personality, look at what characteristics that you demonstrate 
when you are stressed. Not when you're comfortable, but when you are stressed. If it's if you are stressed and you become very quiet and you go in on yourself and you start writing stuff down, you're probably a blue. If you're stressed and you become very loud and very active and, and, and very, very dominant, you're probably a red. If you get stressed and you want to be surrounded by people so that you can communicate, socialize, etc., you're probably a yellow. You're probably a let's do it together type of person. And if you get stressed and all of your energy is focused outwardly at other people's well-being, you know, how are other people feeling? You're probably a green. Let's do it with care. Um, but nobody who's going to be successful as a leader can have only one of those attributes. You must at different times pull on all of those different attributes. Yes. Um, and that, that, that's, I think, a good segue into where we are today, which is storming, because the whole purpose of storming is to, is to almost encourage stress, is to almost encourage some of those difficult, anxiety-ridden conversations in order to develop innovation. So we've talked about different personality types. I want to talk a bit more about kind of brainstorming ideas. When it comes to a new initiative and shaping a new idea, what's your general approach to getting people together to start developing conflict toward a new innovation? There are a few steps, but the first we've subtly covered, which is identifying the right people. You need the right people in the room because you could, I don't know, most metaphorically be, I don't know, planning a battle, but realise actually none of the generals are actually in the room who are working. You've got a room full of, of cooks. <laughs> a room full of cooks. Ensure that you've got the right people in the room. And by right people, I do not mean titles. I'm not talking about influence. I'm talking about say. So there's a great deal of listening, which I will have to do in the immediate future to really listen to who are the influential people, who are the key stakeholders, whose voice carries weight. Because that voice might not be attributed to a title. And once you've worked that out and you've got those individuals in the room and that process of working out and getting them in the room involves... Um, a lot of what we spoke about last time in terms of the norming, the, the relationship building, seeking them out, breaking bread initially with them, the breaking that ice. It's then immediately setting out what the objective is, why they are all there, so that they do not feel like their time has been wasted. And um, Prior to this conversation, Abby and I were speaking about meetings and the, the amount of meetings that the world of Zoom um, has brought along because of the pandemic and how many of these meetings might not necessarily be completely relevant for everyone who's in it. And the key is to ensure that everyone who is there feels that they have specific say or influence within that meeting, because they might not, because you might be, I might be coming from a higher mm. level and I've picked someone who sees themselves as a cook to come into mm. the, the war room. And they're like, but I, I just make sarnies. <laughs> Why am I here? And it might be you actually visualizing and writing down what your opening 30 words will be to everyone once they're all there, helping each and every one of them to understand their significance in that, in that room and why they're there, why you have selected them specifically. After that point, so go for it. 
Um, I was just going to say, I think that's really important. Very briefly, I want to go back to your, your, your train of thought. But why I think that's really important is because you are going to have people who don't feel like their voice is as valuable as other mm. people in the room. And by setting out the belief that everybody's voice is equally valuable, encourages people to co con contribute. If you have the dominant people in the room, as we've talked about, the people with the red energy, they already know that their voice is valuable. But we want to make sure that everybody else also appreciates how valuable and how important their voices are. So that was just my, my, my segue on, on, on that kind of first 30 words piece, because I think it's a really powerful point. Really important, which I'm going to skip a point now and go to that discussion piece. You need to learn how to be a really good chair. Now, Abby, this is something that you do very well. Um, having observed great chairs and rather poor chairs, a great chair brings, they're constantly surveying the room to see who hasn't spoken, but also who potentially should contribute to the stream of conversation right now. They're constantly surveying, okay, who's speaking? Great, they're speaking. How the others responding to this through their body language? Five minutes later, who still has not spoken? Is it okay for that person to still not speak? We want to bring them in at some point. But who really should come in to this conversation right now because of their position in this war room? And that might look like, um, Mike, that was a really interesting point. And I know that you have great expertise in XYZ. Can you please share your thought process on that and what you think should be done? Or how that might actually look like in reality. Once again, building up that person's profile in front of the room, showing that you actually understand who they are, what they do, their knowledge, their expertise, and honestly, and people can tell when you're being sincere, honestly asking for their feedback, honestly asking for their actual response, their input. But almost going back a step, it's the power of the question again. Now, for those people who've been with us for a while, Thank you. Um, but it, it just never, it just never goes away. It's the power of the question. Plan your questions. Plan your questions and have them quality assured. Like present those questions to someone else because the, the question should bring about cognitive conflict. And what I mean by that is it should bring about, they, they cannot be uh, quantitative in terms of yes or no. They, they inessently have to be qualitative, but they have to be qualitative to the point where they cannot be simply answered straight away. It must require the person to have to pause and think hard. And when you've posed that, you're getting a group of people to pause and think hard, which is amazing. So what will come out of their mouth next should hopefully be the best thought that they have or a thought that they haven't actually completely formulated yet because they've never really thought about it yet. So you're trying to, it's a paradigm shift here. You're trying to get them to shift the way they're thinking, which is why, have you spoken in the past about how, well, CEO of McDonald's can go to the CEO of Shell, like, what are they doing? Leadership is leadership, and what they're trying to do is to shift the way people think. They are paid to mm. think themselves. And years ago, I remember reading a book about being paid to think, and it helped me realize, actually, in my leadership journey, I have to help others to realize that they are paid to think. Yes. So... I'm going to really think about the wording of my question and go back to it. Maybe even present or project it so people can see the wording of the question so that they don't answer the question they want to answer. 
Now we're going to stick on this question and we're going to interrogate it. There might only be two or three questions that we're going to focus on throughout the entire meeting. These questions might not bring about concrete solutions now because they're massive questions. But what they will do is to set a tone as to how we are going to start thinking and what the real underlying levers and challenges are. Um, I, I want to delve into the power of the question in a sense and maybe give an example. Um, I find that, especially in my leadership journey, I'm now at a stage where I'm trying to cultivate and create leaders under me. And I think one interesting thing that I notice is the disappointment that people get from the responses to the questions that they've asked. Um, almost like, why is this person answered this question in such a rubbish way? You know, why has this person not given me what I've wanted from my question? And I've got to say to my fellow leaders out there, it's your fault. If you're not getting the appropriate answer to your question, you've asked a poor question. Um, and I must encourage you to consider that if you're not getting the accurate response to the type of question that you're looking for, you must ask a different question. You must ask it in a different way. And I'll give an example of that just very briefly. So um, I was working in a small team to develop a new platform within my, my workplace. Now this platform's aim is irrelevant. The, the, the focus was to create a, um, a platform which sucked in news from about a hundred different sources and identified the relevant articles for my team so that we could then share that with the people within the business who needed to know that, you know, the price of oil has gone up or um, the transport for London has just cut its budget in half, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I had a meeting, an initial meeting with, with my team to create the architecture of what this platform would look like, what new sources um, we would include, how this platform would interact with the users, et cetera, et cetera. Now, most of the team were engaged, but not all of the team were engaged. Now, when we got to the end of this initial meeting, I asked one of the team members, the one who was the most quiet, what do you think? And his answer was, it's good. I think it looks really good. And I, I knew that was a poor answer because I knew that this particular individual was one of the more knowledgeable people in the team. But I asked him a question, what do you think? And his response was, I think it's good. Now, I was disappointed with his response. But then I had to reflect on it and I asked the question, well, my question was terrible. Yeah. What do you think is generally, in most instances, a, gen a terrible question? Now, if you ask a red that question, what do you think? Chances are you're going to get a... <sighs> a an anecdotal like, summary <laughs> of how they have done it in the past and how it's definitely going to achieve, succeed. Exactly. You're going to get an Oscar speech. You're going to have to play the music so that they realize that my time is up. Um, but if you ask a blue that question, you're not necessarily going to get the detailed insight. Now, we know that blues are thinkers. So why wasn't this person giving me the response they wanted? And in this instance, it was just the wrong format. So my approach was to send this individual a transcript of the discussion with the summary of the key points that were agreed at the end of that discussion, and then asked him for feedback. Now, the war and peace <laughs> mm -hmm. 
the War and Peace, um, the Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix book that I received back from this individual with detailed intricate notes about everything that could be improved about our initial discussion it was fantastic and that was that was demonstrable to me that I needed to approach this individual differently he wasn't somebody who could respond off the cuff during the discussion mm. and to be fair he wasn't somebody who needed to because he wasn't a leader he was an analyst and with no real intention of becoming a leader. Now, if it was a leader, I would have said to him, you need to improve the way that you communicate because you're not always going to get the opportunity or get the, the um, charity of somebody giving you a second chance to contribute. That could have been your first and only time to shine. Yeah. But this person being very comfortable as an analyst said, this is okay for me. I don't want to put myself in a firing line. But giving him that second opportunity to actually write his, his thoughts down over the course of about three days really allowed him to shine and really allowed him to add value. So, as I said, as a leader, don't blame somebody else for the, for the response they give to your question. Blame yourself for asking a poor question. Oh, that's a brilliant soundbite. And it's, it's really, it's forced me to think about the purpose of meetings. Um, the, the, the whole purpose of this Delmos series is because it's something which I'm about to live through and I'd done some initial planning in preparation for it, which consisted of creating specific questions which I thought, okay, you know, I'll send it to people prior because I know what people can be like when you send them a really poignant question. You mm. might have tumbleweed for a while, which is a good thing because they're thinking, but actually you've got a limited time frame for that meeting. But it's reminded me that actually that is a lot more significant than I had really thought of beforehand. Because with the anecdote of the analyst, if they had all received maybe two or three really significant questions as part of the agenda prior, that they could work on either with them on their own or with their prospective teams and then bring it to the meeting, then the meeting itself serves the function of a review. Uh, just a continual review. So I'm asking myself, okay, what is the purpose of a meeting? Because on many occasions, the solution isn't actually found in that meeting. Mm. Um, it, it can be, but I think the reason why so many people are anti-meetings is that they don't see answers in them. Yep. That's potentially because of what's not happening before and after the meeting. That the meeting itself should almost be that, that touching base of, okay, show and tell. I've given you tools, I've given you apparatus, I've given you the questions. You, you, we've spoken about this one-to-one, -one. you've gone away with your team to actually review this, you're working on something. Now, as a group, as a conglomerate, we're coming back together now to actually review everything. Ideally, potentially, you've sent me all of your stuff beforehand and I've synthesized it into something which is easily digestible and presented it back mm -hmm. to you. Say, so, okay, across these seven people who've taken it to their seven individual pods or, or groups, They've sent me this information. I've meshed it together. These are the synergies. These are the outliers. This is what it's there. These are the themes which are being presented. Is this what we are saying? And I think that could help people to see that actually this is a purposeful activity and what they are doing is valued. Their thought is valued. 
and as a facilitator, I think it's really important sometimes to be the advocate for other people's ideas. You know what you already think, but the aim of some meetings is to identify conflict and and bring it to the forefront. And a successful or an effective facilitator is able to almost step outside of their own opinions and elevate other people's opinions. So that quiet person who doesn't speak but is able to send you a really detailed email, maybe your job during that meeting is to embody them and mm. to defend their idea, defend their point of view against scrutiny and against feedback. They may be sitting back and listening and not really adding much value in the meeting, but all, always absorbing new information. Um, another purpose for that type of discussion is to bring your stakeholders to the fore, bring your stakeholders into the meeting without actually bringing them into the meeting. Now, your stakeholders can be very busy, but having an initial discussion with your stakeholder by phone, via email, um, or face-to-face allows you to understand what their requirements, their needs are. And then as the facilitator, you can embody the stakeholder, you can embody the customer and say, well, you know, as a customer, this is what I want and allow people to have a almost proxy conversation with the customer, even though they're not in the room, which I think is really important because I know what I think. I know what many of my team might think. But by putting a cat amongst the pigeons, by adding a little bit of disruption to that discussion, it allows people to make sure that their ideas are as robust as they need to be. Yes. We all need that. And it's almost the role of the leader to help people to realize that that is essential. Because mm. some people could leave that process thinking, why is he just out for to get me? <laughs> <laughs> and... There is there's emotional intelligence needed here. Um, there's tact needed here in, in the phrasing of certain rebuttals and critiques. But if the aim is to ensure that this initiative is robust, using almost the, the, the war analogy that this initiative needs to ensure that we minimize casualties, it has to be critiqued. We cannot merely just take your word for it because you did well last time or you speak the loudest. One one thing you said at the beginning of this discussion is that you think you're an average person, and I disagree. I believe there are many strings to your bow, but above all, I think you have genius level emotion, emotional intelligence. And I'd like to talk about that, especially in this stage, because the storming stage, where we're encouraging people to get together, share their ideas, we're encouraging people to disagree and have conflict now this could end in tears before the project's even started yes this could end with your team falling apart and nobody wanting to work together can you talk to me about the application of good emotional intelligence in an environment like this to make sure that the storming phase doesn't talk uh, doesn't end as the the final phase of your your project I'm going to share a very quick anecdote and let me know if I'm not answering your question a, a couple nights ago my wife said to me that she feels that for 2021, she needs to be more gentle. Um, and she was just rambling on about why she feels that she needs to be more gentle. And what I said to her is that, well, one of the reasons why some people are not gentle in their responses is that they are forgetting that the person they're speaking to is weak. They are not seeing the weakness in that person. 
Um, the idea that the meek shall inherit earth is the idea of restrained strength. And if you can mm. shift from seeing yourself as being strong and actively seeing weakness in that person that you're speaking to, you will actively turn the other cheek because you will not want to hinder them or injure them further. No one, even in the animal kingdom, like, there's very few animals who go after injured animals. Like, there's just something almost wrong about it. You don't kick people when they're down. So if you visualize a person's weakness, you you cow down more, which helps them to see that you are, are not a threat. Now that's just a brief anecdote to something which I think I've always believed, but only articulated that on that one occasion when I was having that conversation with my wife, which is everyone has an insecurity and everyone has an area where they feel as if they are extremely vulnerable. And the key is to try to create that connection with that person one-to-one, -one, ideally before that mass meeting, because it's hard to create those connections in, in mass meetings. You are that facilitator, you are that show host where you're dealing with a body of people and you can deal with the atmosphere of that group, but not necessarily the individuals per se. With those one-to-one -one meetings, connect. Show them that there is an understanding of who they are and just humanity. Now, going back to your question of how to almost, was it to ensure that there isn't an, uh, an, an implosion of conflicts during this, that storming phase. Mm. With that, it's to latch onto the conflict. Mm. Something's been said and someone else hasn't spoken because you know they're offended. You've picked up on the fact that there are eyes twitching, there are sh movements with people straightening their back because they've just felt that shot being fired, but no one's actually said anything. But they've said it through their body language. You, you mm. saw the eyes twitch to the left, you saw one or two people sit up a little bit. There was an air of discomfort. Address it. Especially if you're new. Especially, especially if you're new. Do not allow people to think that you saw it and you allowed that to happen. Because what they will see is you saw someone being bullied and you turned a blind eye. Okay, I, I can feel right now that there's a little bit of tension when we speak about this matter. And I don't know whether this is something that can, we can resolve right now. I don't even feel arrogant enough to believe that it can be. But what's crucial is that we remember that we are here for X, Y, and Z. Why is this such a touching point? And is it something that we need to really focus on to achieve this goal? Or is it something which we need to bury so that we can succeed further? Now that's when it's, it's heated, but it's passive. There are other instances where you might have two people who are politely disagreeing, which I loved your anecdote um, the last time about the, the specialist, the, the knowledgeable specialist who through his credibility in his field is able to actually speak loudly, provocatively to anyone and they will take it because they know actually he's, he's Yoda. Yeah. We, we need him. <laughs> He knows what he's talking about. The rest of us don't. <laughs> um, in that instance, if I'm observing that those two are occurring, first I actually allow it to run for a little bit because there's an initial um, desire just to end it because what you're seeing is potentially a fight. But they're not fighting yet. Actually listen to what's being said before you interject because they could very quickly just turn on you. So, yeah.
<laughs> listen to what they are saying and how they are saying it before you intervene. Now, what I'm saying right now is very generalized because I'm trying to encompass all potential examples. But if I'm seeing that no one's actually being assaulted directly, I will let it run for a little bit. And then I will decide what my interaction is. Is my interaction a comical one where I'm going to say out to the building, or is, is this how these, these gentlemen hold hands normally? Is, is, this, is this what they do? Is this a common occurrence? Is this for me? Or is this what they like to do on their own? I, I will address a point which has been mentioned by one of them and find how that links to the grand vision itself, the grand purpose, and say, well, and that's exactly why we are here, because we both feel that this is important, don't we? Rhetoric, bringing them back to some form of unified purpose. They, they can continue to disagree. I don't necessarily want them to agree. They don't necessarily have to, to agree, but we have to be shooting in the same direction. Right. We cannot allow for Weapon X to re-emerge. Go back a few episodes, people. Um, there, there is so much yeah. to it. It's, it's a lot more complicated than it sounds, and it's very difficult to simplify. But it's trying to steer a, a bullet train. And there's the analogy that if you want to try to change the trajectory of a train, you cannot hit it hard from the side because you're just going to derail it. You don't want to derail any of these people. You have to get alongside it and nudge it gradually to get alongside the conflict. Don't avoid it. Um, you will be privately credited for actually getting alongside it and showing that you've got that leadership to say, okay, this, is, this isn't muddy. I'm going to roll up my sleeves and get involved. I'm, I'm going to accept that we can't completely solve this right now because it will be deep-seated. This will be bigger than you and potentially completely irrelevant to the project itself. But you got a manager. I, I agree with almost everything you've just said. I'd say the only thing I disagree with is the last thing you said, which is you will be privately credited. I think sometimes the best facilitators are so good at what they do, people don't even notice. Um, and people aren't even grateful <laughs> for the fact that you stopped the train from crashing into a wall about six or seven times because they were so in the zone yeah. that they didn't even realize that they were leading it down that road. You're, you're sweating by the end of that meeting because of how much heavy lifting you had to do. And some of your team didn't even realize what you were doing. Um, but, but, and I think that's one of the points because what you've described is in a lot of detail an art and not a science. Because what you're doing is you're, it, it, it's a sport. You're, you're, you're reacting to information that's just hit you. And you need to be able to think on the spot in order to prescribe or approach it with the best intervention possible. So for people listening to this who, who don't necessarily know how they can tackle it, the only piece of advice that I can provide is look at a master. Find somebody in your life who is very good at facilitating conversations. How do you know they're good at facilitating conversations? You feel safe when they are in charge of the discussion. Yeah. That's the best way I can describe it. When they are in charge of the discussion, you feel safe. You feel comfortable not only to share, but you feel comfortable to sit back and listen. And next time you're in an environment like that, don't just leave that meeting going, that was a really nice discussion. It was really well-led. 
and ask yourself no questions. You need to be inquisitive and ask yourself the question, how did they do that? What tools? Because it's not easy at all. So when you think about really good facilitators, really delve into what tools they have employed in order to make sure that conversation didn't go off the rails. Or vice versa. Have a look at really poorly organized meetings and ask yourself the question, what did the facilitator not do in order to keep this conversation on track? Um, the other thing that people can do is housekeeping right up front. Now, I think the more comfortable you get in a team, the less you need to do housekeeping. But there may be the need initially to say, okay, th- you know, these are the limits. This is the boundary that we must sit inside so if we fall outside of that boundary, apologies, but I'm going to bring you guys back into the boundary. And you see this being done in different corporate events in some really corny ways. So you might have seen the you know people passing the baton so they're allowed to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really agree with that. Um, people being limited on their speech. So when somebody has an idea, you must say yes and... Um, in order to almost reinforce that idea and then add something else. So you're not really allowed to delve into that level of kind of critique to it. I don't really agree with those types of ways personally, no. but I think if, you, if, if you're really struggling with a really difficult group, maybe you have some of those rules in. I think personally, uh, having a strong facilitator is better than having any of those rules. So as you said, sometimes you need to roll up your sleeves and get in the mud with them. Um, and I think that's a better approach than kind of constraining people's thinking because it goes back to the idea that people don't feel safe. Um, I think the last thing I want to talk about in this area in terms of facilitation, making sure conversations don't go off the rails, is active listening. Now, I think we could do a an entire episode on the value and some of the techniques involved in active listening. Um But very briefly, what I would say I mean by active listening is paying detailed attention to what is being said and the context within which it is being said and who is saying it. Because all of those things matter. You can't look at a statement in a vacuum. You have to take into consideration who says it and why they might be saying it at the time. Because that gives you a better idea of what the person is thinking and feeling. Um, Why is it important to actively listen? Because it's a great way of understanding people's mindset and getting them on side. Um, Maybe I'll give you an example of how active listening can uh, support a discussion. So, for example... Um, I'll I'll go back to the same example of this platform that I was discussing earlier and trying to roll it out um, amongst various users. And I introduced it to one user um, and explaining to him all of the benefits that this new platform had and how it would help optimize um, information gathering for his team. And he said, I don't think it's a good idea for my team. And I was actually really confused. Like, this is going to help you so much. Um, and, and he wasn't really involved. He didn't want, want to hear it. And then his job title was, was head of software tools. And 
understanding his job title and understanding the stress that he was in, he was managing about seven other different platforms at the same time. So his, his role was to roll out different tools within the organization. And he was currently in the process of re reviewing about six other tools. So me coming to him as this person with a bright, shiny new tool to add to his six, saying this is going to optimize your, your, the, the performance, the information gathering, his perspective was, I've probably seen, I've seen something like this before. Um, it hasn't changed my life. It hasn't made anything better. And I don't really want to add the stress to my table. But his statement was, I don't think it's a good idea. So... The purpose of active listening in this instance is not only hearing what he's saying, but understanding why he was saying it and then delving into how you could actually improve his experience. You know, next steps for that would be to look at the six other tools that he's looking at, which he didn't tell me about, which I had to dig out and find out myself and understand, okay, well, he's currently dealing with six other tools. The, the platform that I'm introducing to him can actually replace three of those. But he doesn't know that because he's heard tool and is, is initially turned off. But if he allows me to demonstrate how my one tool could replace three of his, then maybe he's going to be brought in more. So that's just an example of active listening and how a conversation, which initially sounds like it's conflict, could be resolved just by understanding the context with which the comments are being said. Um, once again, this is an art, not a science. So I'm giving you one example, which is used to demonstrate the, the applicability of multiple different scenarios. It can never really be done. But in any instance, it's so important just to pay attention to all of the different cues. Um, I might get the percentage wrong, but I believe it's about 80% of communication is body language. Yes. So 80% of communication is non-verbal, which really tells us a story in this new Zoom generation where we're not necessarily picking up all of the cues that people are sharing to us non-verbally. But if that is the case and most communication is non-verbal, what are you picking up in the facial expressions, in the body position, in the eye contact from the person that you're speaking to that you need to take into consideration? And how can you respond appropriately in order to get that conversation back on track? I, I sincerely believe that young people should be taught how to listen. Mm. Um, having worked with young people for just over a decade now, it's, it's one of the things which I see as declining um, rapidly. I, I remember I had an English teacher called Mr. Higgins when I was in year seven. And I used to sit beside a boy called Declan Dwyer, a good friend of mine then. And Mr. Aiken said to me quite bluntly um, that the difference between, in his opinion, those who did well and those who didn't, is that those who did well listened. And early in my career, I, I took that and I, I turned it into a maxim that those who listen succeed. And I actually got kids to repeat it after me, like those who listen and they said succeed. Over the last decade, I've seen that just dwindle the ability to listen and what you're sharing there is just so powerful because we've got the passive listening which is what most of them are doing which is they're silent 
but they're not attempting to understand. They're just really waiting for their turn to speak or mm. they're just passive completely and they're not even attempting to respond. So it's a passive listening. Then there's the active listening, like you say, and then there's the, the empathetic listening, which um, Covey mentioned in his Seven Habits, which I think you did there because of the anecdote that you shared, I think it's more, yes, he did not understand how this could improve his, his working experience. And you did the work, which is what a lot of leaders don't do. They don't want to do the work. They, they created a solution. They had the meeting. They, they facilitated the meeting. They presented it to an individual and they get shut down. And they're thinking about themselves and not why that person might shoot it down. Like yeah. digging deep into understanding, okay, what is it about this which makes it irrelevant and just not what people want? Um, it reminds me of that platform which uh, you shared with me about people's phones where they could watch the movies and actually no one wanted to watch movies on their phone. Mm. You're so engrossed in your source, like your product, that you're not listening to your consumer. Mm. But I think you employed empathetic listening because clearly it wasn't just the fact that he already had so many other tools. It was the fact that he was already stretched. It was the fact that he was already at capacity. And that's at work, but that would have been more than work. It would have been his home life also. If, if you're stretched at work, well, there is no overflow. Um, so you're going home to potentially not have a, a reservoir to dig into to do more, whether that's with a partner, with, with children, with a hobby, et cetera, et cetera. So that's impacting the quality of his life. And he's not going to articulate that. So when he hears you saying, oh, I've got another new tool, you, you're just adding to his workload from his perspective. But the empathetic listener, which you employed, is able to not necessarily listen to understand, but to listen to get it emotionally, to understand the person emotionally and intellectually. Where are they right now? And why might this not be a great thing for them from their perspective? So it's, it's the passive individual, doesn't care at all, not responding. The passive listener who's not listening, just wants to speak. The active listener, who is often almost like parroting what some of the people are saying, showing that they understand, digging deep to really understand the person. And then the empathetic, suggested by Covey, who is trying to get to that person's core, because we're, we're driven by emotion. Um, I mean, that's what Covey really understood, that it's all emotion, um, it's all psychology. So that's why Arsenal are doing so terribly right now. It's not that they are not <laughs> good technically, but psychologically, it's not there right now. And if you can get people moving, there, there's a, last one for me, there was a, a, a great theorist in the world of education who said you cannot recruit your way to outstanding. And what he suggested, which doesn't work in all fields, because in many fields you can recruit yourself to outstanding, um, to outstanding outcomes. Um, and I, I've seen it being done where you can effectively headhunt and that can lead to the, the, the critical mass shifting. But what he mm. suggested in many organisations is that you're going to be stuck with the people you have. You are going to have weapon X's all over the shop. <laughs> and what you might have to do is to work alongside those people. And thus you, you are going to have to actively listen and empathetically listen to understand their history and their version of their history and that will be tiring hopefully i won't have to do that with a great deal of people but it's possible that i might have to do it with a couple um i love that and it's it's brought to the fore another analogy and it's the last thing i'm going to say 
Unfortunately, not everybody listening is going to understand this. But for those of you who do, um, hopefully this this sinks in. But I, I'd like to highlight that we've all probably, or most of us have had, probably had or experienced examples of great communication and active listening. And I'd like to, you to think about the best date that you've ever had, the best date that you've ever gone on with a potential mate. And think about how all of your five senses were engaged, how you paid attention to everything that came out of that person's mouth, their facial expressions, you looked at their body language, you were conscious of your own body language, how you were sat, how you were being um, presented, and you didn't have a statement ready, because you were actually waiting to respond to what was going to come out of their mouth, you weren't going to read off of, you know, a pre- pre-prescribed list of statements. You were just waiting to hear what they said. You were actively listening to the words that they were going to say. And your response was visceral as a result of what they said. And it was like a game of tennis where you were going back and forth. And afterwards, you notice your heart rate was elevated. You notice being actively engaged in who this person was and what they had to share with you. Now, that type of communication, if you can harness that in other forms of your, your life, with business discussions, etc., then you will be successful. The people who are leaders do this all of the time, which is why they are called charismatic or charming, because they're able to make you, whether it's um, uh, same sex or different sex, whatever you want to call it, they are able to charm you by demonstrating that level of intent, by demonstrating that level of engagement that they would if they were on a date. Now, as I said, not everybody's going to gauge in engaging that because... Unfortunately, the art of dating and the art of active communication in dating has died down in the Tinder age. But some people are going to know exactly what I'm referring to. And I think that's the best way that I can put it. And if you don't know what I'm referring to, potentially seek that out with a close friend. There isn't a pre-prescribed list. There is just a discussion that you are passionate about and that you haven't got you haven't got a an idea of what you think, but you're able to form your your ideas in the moment based on what's been shared with you and how you respond viscerally to that. Like if you're able to do that, if you're the single people amongst us listening, if you're able to do that well, you're going to become incredibly attractive to the opposite sex. Doesn't matter, who, you know, um, whether you're a male or a female. Those characteristics make you incredibly charismatic and it's a skill that is relevant to pretty much every field of life that you're going to experience so I think that's the best way I can put it which is why rhetoric was taught I think mm. people knew early on that the ability to effectively communicate would mean that you would lead so if I teach my child to effectively communicate I'm influencing his future and potentially my name Absolutely. This is Bro, I've really enjoyed this one. This is really, really powerful stuff. Um, please do let us know how you get, go about with a lot of these practices, a lot of these ideas, because they are skills. They are underpinned by knowledge, a knowledge of people, a knowledge of rhetoric. So study, observe, watch, but implement and analyze, like reflect upon how they're being um, executed and let us know. Let us know when it did work. Let us know when it didn't work. So we can help you troubleshoot. 
because everyone can get better at this. And it's arguably an ultimate form for us all to achieve. So challenge to you, this week, many of you are going back to work and are not satisfied with your current working environment and would like to see an improvement. I'd love for, for you to, to take on some of these uh, skills, some of these suggestions that we've uh, discussed and introduce it into your next meeting. Try to, try to have one of those really engaging conversations where you're actively listening and you may completely get a blank response because the people around you are so entrenched in their ways that they just think you're trying to, to get their phone number. But I'd really encourage you to, to, to push and see if you can delve and scratch beneath the surface amongst some of the discussions that you're having and, and, and get to that next level of innovation or next level of delivery. Um, I really hope that this new year um, is, is a year of, of, of success and a year of you know, new, new heights for everybody. We're going to be here to, to help you along the way and help shape our own vision. So you know, please continue to communicate, continue to engage with us. We can't wait to hear what you have to say about this discussion in particular. This has been another episode of Expensive Lessons where company directors share the fruit of their labour and that's our cue to go. Um, we really hope you have a fantastic week. Thanks for tuning in. Take care. Take care, everyone. God bless. <laughs>